I first heard about Eric Schmidt years ago when he was a wunderkind in Silicon Valley. And people used to actually say, Eric Schmidt is God. I mean, I remember people saying it was sort of a, you know, hyperbole, but it was like, this guy's the smartest engineer. In the same way they used to say Eric Clapton is God, you know, for those of you who are into guitar players, meaning he's the best. Yeah, Eric had a star career at Sun Microsystems and Novell, and then all of a sudden he became the grown-up because Google was founded with Larry Page um, and Sergey Brin, and they were famously just, you know, very young people coming out of Stanford in their 20s, and they had this all of a sudden juggernaut on their hands, and they needed adult supervision. And so uh, the backers of the company at that point decided that it might make sense to bring Eric Schmidt in. And Larry and Sergey were receptive and even more than that embraced the idea of Eric's leadership. Eric's new book is about Coach Bill Campbell, who uh, is an amazing character, came from the football fields of Columbia University and went out to Silicon Valley and became Eric's advisor and Steve Jobs' advisor and Larry Page's advisor and the advisor to Sheryl Sandberg and so many other um, successful executives in Silicon Valley. And Eric's book is about the wisdom of Bill Campbell, and it's pretty darn interesting. Alphabet, former CEO of Google, renaissance man, author of a new book, Trillion Dollar Coach on Bill Campbell. Great and a longtime friend of Andy. And a longtime friend. We're together a long time. Friend. That's correct, Eric. Great to see you again. Thank you. So let's start with this new book, Trillion Dollar Coach, about... Bill Campbell, um, who I also knew a little bit, and um, a legendary advisor in Silicon Valley. Why did you decide to do the book? Well, my co-authors, you know, Jonathan and Alan and I, looked at this. Originally, we wanted to write a book about him because he was such a mentor to us, such a coach, and so forth. But I think we actually discovered something new. I think we discovered that coaches of teams are the way to build great companies. And no one's ever talked about this before. They talk about individual coaching. But Bill successfully coached the entire management team of Apple with Steve in it and the entire management team of Google with Larry, Sergey, and myself in it uh, to multi-trillion dollar valuations. It's extraordinary. So what did he mean specifically to you and to Google then? Well, for me, he started off as my individual coach. And I said, well, I don't need a coach. You know, like everyone else, I'm 40 and I think I'm super at everything. Um, and my friend, John Doerr, said, uh, Does, do tennis players have coaches? And I said, well, you got me there. So in fact, coaching is different from playing, right? It's a different skill set. And so once we started with Bill, he started working on structuring the board, talking to the board, talking to the management team. And what I realized was that he was coaching the whole team. So what would happen is one of the executives would become unhappy about something. And I'd say, Bill, go try to figure out what's wrong there. Let's bring them, bring them back so they're playing on the same team as everyone else. And his basic principle was he wanted people to work on the team and with the common goals. And he would do whatever it took to get people into that framework. He was a behind-the-scenes guy, though, yeah. right? He, he didn't want credit? Well, in fact, he hated press. Um, I know that a little you, bit. You, well, you actually yeah. met him. Yes. Right? So you can describe yeah. how, how did he make you feel? Well, he grudgingly accepted our process, I think is the way I describe it. He didn't want credit for what he did, and I think that was genuine. It was genuine, absolutely. In fact, he was very upset whenever he was mentioned in any context. His whole goal was the credit of others. And 
I, I've thought a lot about how did this happen, because he was a strong-willed, creative CEO. Um, he was the vice president of marketing who brought out the 1984 famous uh, Apple television ad. He worked closely, a normal executive. He somehow decided sometime in his 50s that he had been successful enough and he wanted to give back. And he famously refused compensation. So when he shows up in my office in 2001, I said, well, how do we pay you? And he said, don't pay me. And I said, well, we'll put you on the board. He said, don't put me on the board. I can't do my job if you pay me or put me on your board. His job was to be our coach. A really singular guy. So at one point, um, there's a story in the book about how Larry and Sergey wanted to get rid of managers, or in fact, got rid of them. And then Bill convinced them to bring them back. Can you yes. talk about that? So one day, Larry and Sergey, this is very early at Google, had been looking at what the managers were doing and what the individuals were doing. And they decided correctly that the managers weren't in good touch with what the engineers were doing. So they decided to get rid of the managers, which caused a problem because we had 120 people who now had somewhere they had to report to. So we gave them to report to a gentleman named Bill Corrin. What was interesting about this is I figured, you know, the engineers are complaining, this will work, they'll self-organize. But the engineers started to complain that they wanted management. They wanted leadership. And why? Well, they had career aspirations, or they had questions, or they had compensation problems, or they had a fight with somebody else, or they just wanted somebody to talk to. And so Bill came in and ultimately convinced everybody to bring in a different kind of management, which is in place today. One thing he says, well, in fact, he says a number of things that I found somewhat counterintuitive. I mean, first of all, maybe his cursing is sort of counterintuitive that he uh, was famous for. But he said that it's the CEO's job to manage the board. And gee, I always thought it was the other way around. Well, what's your take on that? Well, first place, Bill was a man of his time. And so that meant he was a football coach and you know he was colorful in his language and so forth. But he had an enormous heart. And his position was that the CEO was running things and that included making sure that the board knew what was going on. Now, ultimately, of course, the board can replace the CEO, but a talented CEO keeps their board apprised as to what's going on, and he, we ultimately developed a principle, which was the no surprises rule. There's never going to be a surprise in the board meeting, because either I will have told the board, or he will give them a heads up on my behalf, and that worked. He talked about conflict versus relationship conflict. What is that all about? Well, there's going to be conflicts. There's going to be disagreements. But you're never allowed to attack the person, right? It's never OK to say something terrible about a person as an individual. Attack the idea. Attack the, and say, look, I have a better idea. I have more data. And he also pushed very hard, and this, I think, was his signature achievement at Google, to make sure that we didn't get to a consensus idea, but to the best idea. In other words, you're not done until you get to the best possible idea out of the situation. Some of this stuff, Eric, quite honestly, sounds intuitive. But, it's obvious. But, I, but people don't do it. Why? Why, don't, Why? I don't know. It's a mystery to me. <laughs> and I can tell you one answer, which is often in our industry, the executives are young. They're not that experienced. All of us went through that. But another possibility is that people just don't have the time. I mean, the pressure on these companies and the startups, and it was bad enough for me, but look at it today with the time critical and, and compression that people are dealing with. So people feel like they have to get up and boom, 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 
right? And the problem is that that violates the basic principle, which is the only thing that matters are the human beings. So what Bill taught us was to take a minute and say, how are you, right? And, and to mean it, by the way. Don't do it in a perfunctory, hi, you know, whatever. But listen to them. Be present. Say, don't be on your phone or whatever. How's your family? What's going on in your life? And he was also interesting in that the way he managed was he started with trust, not facts. So his first question was not, what are you in charge of? But rather, who are you? What do you want to achieve? How do I let you achieve that? How, how do I help you? And then you get into the specifics. Taking that extra time, which isn't a lot. We're talking about five or 10 minutes. We're not talking about hours, right? So somebody calls you and say, how are you? What are you doing, right? How's your life, right? How can I help you? Building that trust was key. Now, it seems obvious when I say it, but one, people don't do it. But why was it useful? Because then down the line, when there would be a tough situation, like, hey, they screwed up, he could go in because he was trusted and say, we need to have a conversation about this. Why aren't there more Bill Campbells, Eric? I think partly because he was a unique talent. You know, he, he, he was not a technical person. It's very rare for technical people without any technical background to end up in the kind of role that he's in. Um, but I think also because the discipline of coaching is not appreciated. I believe that Bill invented a new Silicon Valley product, which is executive coaching of the style. I believe that our book is his playbook. The only reason he didn't write the playbook is he didn't want any press. Right? But what he should have done is he should have written the book about his theories, which we hope we have exemplified by interviews with 80 people, including all the people in Silicon Valley who everyone knows. Let's talk about you a little bit, Eric. Um, in your background, um, you grew up in Italy a little bit. Your parents were academics. Um, what about that shaped you and um, got you out to the valley? I think in my case, I was born and raised as an intellectual you know, reasonably soft-spoken and, you know, an ideas person and a scientist. And I was fortunate. And I think one of the things that Bill and I talked a lot about was the role of fate, right, and luck. And he would teach, start by saying that you're lucky, right, that you're lucky to be here. You're lucky by birth. You're lucky by this generation. Imagine if you'd been born 500 years ago. Just think dentistry, you know, alone. Um, and you know, so we're really lucky to be where we are, and I was particularly lucky to be at the beginning of the computer science revolution. You had uh, a hand in a, in a discovery at Bell Labs as an intern. Did that also help spur you and give you confidence? Well, at the time, it's hard to remember, this is more than 40 years ago, um, there was no computer science as we know it. The, the field was just sort of being designed. You couldn't major in computer science. Mm. They were mostly mathematicians. And many of the top people were at Bell Labs and at a place called Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, which had been formed in the mid-60s early and, early and late 60s. Bell Labs had been around for a long time because it was a monopoly out of the original Bell AT&T monopoly. And it's the place where transistors and other things were invented, television, uh, all sorts of astro astrophysics things and so forth. Um, so in my case, I had the good fortune of working at Bell Labs as an undergraduate and wrote a program called Lex. Um, and this was back when the Unix community was 10 people. Hmm. Today, when you use a, any form of computing, you're using 
the grandchild of that team of 10 people. Yeah. And that grandchild is open source Linux. Right, pretty amazing. Can you talk about uh, mentors that you had, say besides Coach, for instance, Scott McNeely helped you out, other people like that? I always worked with somebody who was brilliant and smarter than I was. So in, as, a, as an undergraduate and graduate student, as an undergraduate I worked with a guy named Jeff Ullman, who's now at Stanford. As a graduate student I worked with a guy named Bill Joy who did much of the Unix work. Yep. Um, as a graduate student, I worked with Butler Lampson, um, who's now now at Microsoft, but is a, and these are brilliant people. And I was particularly good at working with them to take their ideas and turn them into reality. So I always would say they're the smart one, and my good my ability was a translational ability. So it's interesting that in my years of Sun, Bill was my business partner, Scott was our our boss, and so forth. But my job was really to translate what they wanted. So when I showed up at Google, it was the same thing. It's Larry and Sergey, younger than me, but far smarter, far more brilliant than anybody I'd worked with. My job was to translate their vision into reality. What was Google like in those early days? I mean, you talked about Larry and Sergey. There was Marissa Meyer, Tim Armstrong, later Susan Wojcicki. I mean, there's just an amazing group of stars of tech really, right? Well, it's interesting, I wonder, you know, these people were so smart then, but they were super young. And so the first rule you say is that you really need to work with people who are incredibly high potential, which they were, but they were also shaped by the experiences that happened around them. So Tim Armstrong, for example, had not done very much in sales. He was sort of a sales executive. Omid had hired him, but he had an opportunity to run our U.S. sales force and build this extraordinary ad ad business, which he then went on to run, you know, uh, companies in in, uh, in the rest of the world, including AOL. So uh, Tim is a good example of somebody who was an extraordinary racehorse, who then needed to run the races and learn how to win and so forth. And you need both. Marissa the same way. Sheryl Sandberg the same way. Right. They had ex you could sense when they were young that they had that that ability to see beyond where they were, and they had the ability to lead. Um, as an example, my first visit in New York was on 9-11 in 2001, and I met Tim Armstrong, and then 9-11 happened, and I watched him work with our employees, of which there were 20, right, to deal with the sort of tragedy of the people being in the middle of Manhattan during this horrendous thing. You could see his, um, his leadership skills as a young executive. They just have them. So, so I think one of the things to remember is that you need both you know, a, a sort of great general and a great war, whatever metaphor you want to do, to sort of create this. You need both. Um, in my case, I was frankly lucky to be at the right time. Maybe a little bit more than lucky, Eric. What, what makes people succeed, maybe you touched on this a little bit, but what makes people succeed in Silicon Valley? I always tell people that there's a whole bunch of examples, but the, the easiest example about engineering is when I walk up to an, uh, an executive who's in engineering, I expect them to listen to difficult recruiting problems, difficult product delays, employees who are screaming at them over one thing or another, very needy people, and enormous competitive pressure. And I expect them, when I walk into them, to be able to answer the question right now, how are you, what are your issues, what are you doing to fix them? So that's a good example of what it takes to be successful. 
in sales, when I, started in, when I started a long time ago, we didn't have this, but today sales is an analytical function, right? That we know what our yield is per the quarter. We know how much money we're going to make. We know what our customers are going to give us. We have a complete understanding, at least in the very short term in sales, about what's happening in our sales engine. And we have tools now that didn't exist decades ago that allow us to run sales analytically. With marketing, we can measure the impact of our marketing ideas. You think your ad is great, and I think my ad is great. We can test that now. Right. So management today in Silicon Valley is a science in the sense that it's measurable. Now, there are aspects of artistry. So for example, recruiting, understanding the exceptional people over the very good people, and that's still an art. And deciding exactly who to promote and how to do budgeting and so forth is still an art. But there's so many analytical tools that I didn't have when I was a young executive. Yeah, and, and you're expected to know them. No question about it. You can't, well, you can't succeed, to your point, without knowing. When I look at the young, what I consider to be young executives now in the Valley, and I'm thinking of Sundar and his generation mm -hmm. of leaders. Yeah. Um, and re remember, I was a generation earlier, and then I followed a generation that you know, yeah. preceded me. When I look at them, this generation is impossibly faster. Yeah. Right. They're, the ability to make decisions, identify challenges, organize teams, put things together. We would spend months discussing what we would do. And these guys, boom, but they have boom, to be. Boom. Right? And, and the question is, is it the horse or the jockey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are they forced to? Right. Or are they just so much better? In other words, well, it's a yin and a yang. And a yin right? and a yang. And, and yeah. I don't know, and mm -hmm. maybe this is what happens as you get older, I don't right. know if I were their age now, would I be as good? I know they're better than. I was then. What I don't know is would the circumstances have brought me up to their level? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you the pace is relentless. I mean, yeah. it, it and really And you see is. this, by the way, in journalism. Yeah. Right. right. Look oh, at the journalists, you know, right. your journalism career and editing career compared to what's going on today. Yeah. And one of the underlying points about life is that everything has gotten so much faster, faster than we think it has. Yeah. Do you remember the time when you were not spending all your time on your smartphone? Yeah. Well, let me remind you that smartphones started in roughly 2008, and you're older than 10 years old. Yeah. Right. So the fact is, you do. You just don't remember it now. Yeah. Do you remember a time before you had a cell phone? Right. I do. Right. And by the way, we got through life. Yeah. Oh, I know. It's it's amazing. So, do you need? Does one need to be a CS person? Um, to run a Google or an Alphabet or a Facebook or a Cisco? I mean, do you have to have that background? You don't have to have a computer science degree, but you have to have an analytical bent, right? You have to be able to work with the numbers. And I, by numbers, I don't mean deeply numbered, but you have to think analytically. If you think in terms of metaphor and in terms of vision and in terms of ideas, you're going to not be able to run these companies. There's just too many things you have to organize. Um, but I, I, let me give you an example. Craig McCaw, uh, history major from Stanford, incredible analytical manager. Right. Steve Jobs right. didn't graduate from college. Right? Studied calligraphy. Studied calligraphy and of right. course did it very well, did yeah. everything well. Right. The smartest of them all. Mm -hmm. right? right, yes. So it, another observation is that the competition around leadership now is such that I think we're getting people who are ably capable at everything. You know, the old rule about capability is there are people who are 
just maddeningly better than you at reading and writing and arithmetic and right. you know whatever. There are people they're just their processors are, if you will, better. And I think they tend to be rise. They, they're more likely to rise to the top now because it's so meritocratic now. So why is the bloom off the rose for the technology industry in the eyes of so many Americans? I'm not sure I agree with that comment. I mm -hmm. think that's a perception that the press has. Right. Um, all the studies I've indicated are that uh, people really like our products mm -hmm. um, as a general statement, and we know that because they use them more and more and more. So I, I'm not sure I would jump to that conclusion quite the way you said it. There's mm -hmm. clearly issues. Going back to the topic of the book, um, what would Bill say in this situation? Mm -hmm. And we don't know, but I can suggest that he would say, let's stick to our values and let's organize the teams that are necessary to go work on these problems. So the way he would have thought about it is say, here's a problem, here's a perception problem, here's a regulatory problem or what have you. Let's figure out if we have the smartest people, let's get them organized, figure out our values and let them figure out some solutions. Right, what is Alphabet and, and Google? How would you describe the company to an eight-year-old nephew or niece? Well, I think of these companies, uh, the collection of companies, as companies that do systematic innovation. Mm -hmm. And that um, Google, for me, was always a place where I didn't quite know what the innovation would be, but I knew how to systematize it, to regularize it, to make it more predictable. That the innovators would bottoms up and things would happen. Uh, what Larry and Sergey have done with Alphabet is they've re replicated that with companies. So now there are five or six Alphabet companies that are of scale. There are more on their way. Uh, one is in self-driving cars. That's clearly going to be hugely successful. Another one is in medical diagnostics and medicine in general, and that's verily, that's clearly already successful, and there are others coming. I want to drill down a little bit, Eric, in this sort of $64,000 question, which is the problems of tech, the problems that are facing Google and Facebook and Twitter, the platforms. Um, so there's, there are myriad problems, which you acknowledge. I mean, there's, there's problems of um, bad actors getting onto the platforms. There's problems of free speech, questions about free speech um, on platforms like YouTube, for instance. Then there's antitrust concerns as, as well. How should um, Americans think about this? How should the tech executives think about it? How should Washington think about it? What are, how can we get to some sort of resolution? Well, one, I think, I think these issues are ongoing because these are human-based systems. And so humans will continue to use them. They will continue to do unexpected things. There will continue to be surprises. And I've often thought that one of the things that scale brings you is the ability to detect aberrant behavior, right? So mm -hmm. if I go back to YouTube, mm -hmm. um, when YouTube was started, there was there were some copyright issues. Yeah. Um, and there was a lawsuit with Viacom, which has since been solved and so forth. And we began to build tools that would make it very difficult for user uploaded technology to be copyright violating. Yeah. Today, that, today that technology is extraordinarily powerful. So I think all of these platforms that are human-centric will have to have a component of them which is sort of, if you will, watching what the, what the users are doing and making sure they're consistent with their terms of service and the law. Is there a role for Washington, D.C.? 
it's generally better to let the tech companies do these things. The problem is if you write a rule, inevitably you fix the solution on a specific solution, yeah. but the technology moves so quickly. Is there an example of a self-correct by maybe not even just tech, but any business where they've seen these sort of, I don't know, systemic problems or problems with the business model that were unanticipated where they've been able to address them, do you think? Well, certainly Google ha did not understand, certainly when I was running it, how serious some of these issues would be. Um, we, we, didn't, we didn't fully understand the scale of these problems, certainly when I was CEO. And um, so our response has, in my view, been very strong. Today we have all sorts of software that enforces policies of one kind or another. Um, and people complain about the rules, but the fact of the matter is the rules are published. Right, and last question on this, on this point. Um, is this ultimately something that's going to mean, say, lower margins for companies? I mean, does it entail a greater spend in terms of humans and or computing power? I, I, there's no way to predict that. Mm. I mean, uh, in software, in what we do, your profitability, your revenue growth is completely determined by your level of innovation. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to think about it in the following way. Mm -hmm. um, eventually markets over a long period of time stabilize and eventually there's sort of uh, zero sum competition and eventually margins compress and things become more commoditized, right? Yeah. Look at the steel industry as an example. We are not anywhere near that. No. We are decades from that. We are maybe a century from that. So we're all using all of the old concepts into the creative side of technology and in particular software is not appropriate. There are startup after startup with new ideas that will have different margin structures and different ways of solving problems. We're, we're still in the early stage of that. Okay, did you have any idea when you first got to Google that it would turn out to look even anything like this? No, not at all. I actually wanted to go to Google because it was a one building company because I had worked at Novell, which was a multi-building company, and I actually wanted to have one building where everyone was in it so I could actually hang out and talk to them and have a really good time. And, you know, boy, was I wrong. Right. Uh, but I joined a one-building company that was extraordinary. And so what are the limitations for a company like Google, or are there any for, for Alphabet? Should there be any? I mean, at some point you have to be, I mean, Sunder's big job is sort of allocation and deciding the path forward in a way, no, right? Sunder has many jobs. Okay. He has recruiting jobs and he has right. marketing jobs. And he's but ultimately, isn't that sort of figuring out where to go? I mean, maybe it's presumptuous of me. Go ahead, you talk. Um, I, as I, I think as a general statement, we don't know where the limits of this, tech, this, this current tech boom is. Mm -hmm. People have talked about it, you know, topping out for years. Um, if you ask anyone, they'll say, oh, the next nine to, tw nine to 18 months. You know, they, but they've been saying that for a decade. So I think we don't know. Um, this year we have very significant IPOs of new companies that are of scale companies, new platforms with more expected. I don't think we know. So interesting that Uber, I remember, Eric, the first time that I put Uber and Google in the same sentence as competitors and just how shocking that was. What are, preposterous thing and now of course it's just of course they're competitors and partners we're also right? super super close partners right Uber. but but it's just you thought that they these companies had nothing to do with each other was my point and of course that's not the case at all but, I, but a better way to think about uber is what's the best use 
of a mobile phone that has a GPS and a map on it. Right. Turns out one of the best uses is the ability to summon the things that you care about to where you are and watch them come to you. So this notion of Uber for everything, right, that as a metaphor, is a very powerful one. Maps, people are talking about that as being a, a super app, a la what's going on in China. Have you explored that at all? Well, I think, uh, I, I can't speak for the, the specifics plan, plans, but people care an awful lot about what's going on on the earth, right? So hyper-local behavior, hyper, if you look at the set of startups around hyper-local, they're very, very interesting. All of these were enabled by a phone with a GPS on it, right? And by the way, the majority of those phones are Android phones. Right. Um, we were talking a little bit off camera about um, our political system and the dysfunction, and you were talking about maybe some thinking about why that exists. So I want to ask you about that and what you would look for in the next political leader or political leadership for this country. I'd rather not ask, add, I'd rather not answer the political question, but I'd like to answer the system question. Okay. You're beginning to see writers who've analyzed the way our political systems work point out that the incentives are driving the behavior. Meaning what? That basically, um, if you're on one side, you're not incentivized to work across the aisle. You're incentivized to work away from the center because that's how your money gets, that's how you get your votes, that's how you get your attention. And the more outrageous you are, the more attention you can get on Again, on any, I'm not passing any value judgment here. It's just true as a system function. So whether it's money or attention, right, hmm. the incentives are there. We also know from research on social media like Twitter and Facebook that things which are outrageous are more likely to be shared and tweeted and resent and so forth than things which are reasonable. So our, our obsession with this fight and our reaction to it and the way we as citizens play in it is driving it harder away, right? So we want the politicians to somehow sit in the middle, but in fact, the system is forcing them in, and they will privately complain about this. So if we want this to change, we have to start by what's the nature of the system driving their behavior? So, and, and what is that? I mean, well, you explained it. But how do we address the, those negative implications then, if that's what we want? Well, it's not, it's not my area of expertise, but someone's got to come up with a better proposal. Yeah. Um, the end of the book, you talked about uh, Eric 3.0. What does Eric Schmidt 3.0 mean? Well, it's interesting that writing, writing books, as you know, because you've done your share, um, really does sort of change you. You really do think about it. And in my case, I'm extremely interested now um, in working on talent and working on leadership and in my private foundation work with something called Schmidt Futures I'm really trying to identify this next generation of talent to work with them to develop them. So talk about um, how you want to use your influence on the world maybe that's a part of it but this show is called The Influencers. What do you think about in terms of how you can use your talent and your knowledge to impact um, humanity writ large. Well, one of the things to remember is that we're here because of the, te the technological revolution. And the technological revolution 
is the primary source of economic growth. And the primary source of economic growth is the primary source of health and well-being globally. So in the last 20 years, globalization has brought 2 billion people out of poverty. All of this narrative starts from science and innovation and entrepreneurship. In our country today, we are not increasing our spending on science and we're not increasing our spending on education, both of which we need desperate love. As we face the great global challenges, as for example, China continues to grow and continues to be super successful, what will America's response be? It has to be more of what we're good at, more science funding, more entrepreneurs, more immigrants, right, of uh, at least high skills immigrants, more PhD programs, more startups, more, more innovation. The American universities are 18 of the 20 top of universities in the world are American. But if you look, for example, in artificial intelligence, the Chinese universities are now producing extraordinarily good research. So all of a sudden, we have a competitor in China and we've always had competitors on, in Europe. We need to get our act together. We got here as this great country of America because our forefathers worked really hard, for example, to create the land-grant universities, universal high school. Where is our focus on STEM education, on reforming education, on getting more people to the table, getting more smart people, getting them assembled in teams, building companies? Think about the wealth that has been created by Silicon Valley and remember how much taxes that is, how much that actually funds the U.S. government's aspirations, uh, which, is, which are many and important. Eric Schmidt is one of the most thoughtful and intelligent people you will ever meet. I mean, he's just super smart. He radiates smartness. His brain just kind of glows, right? Um, and it's always interesting to talk to him. He's a, he's a charming guy as well, so it's, a, it's always a pleasant conversation, which isn't to say he's always right, but he sure is interesting to listen to. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at SirWork.